Respect. Sevome. Respeto. Spoštujmo. Respect words. Ithiki dimosiografia ja tina dimetopisi tis ritorikis tumisus. Etično novinarstvo proti sovražnemu govoru. Il potere delle parole. Respect for Worten, Respect for Menschen gegen Hassreden. A tisztelet hangján szólunk. Riportok, interjúk, tudósítások a gyűlöletbeszéd ellen. Mi becsüljük a másikat. Respect. La onda local de Andalucía contra los discursos de odio. Más or oco? Erisorok de etikul, egwene kainte fuha. Ethical journalism against hate speech. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Falter Road, I'm Kieran Murray. Good afternoon and welcome to Respect Words. This is the first in a 20-part series where we look at the issue of hate speech and the importance of the words we use and how we use them. And more generally, we look at immigration in Ireland and in Europe. On this week's programme, I will be speaking to Anne Walsh from the No to Hate Speech campaign. But before that, my colleague Sally Galliana spoke to Karen Reid and she's the Communication Officer from the Refugee Council of Ireland. Um, my name is Caroline Reid. I'm uh, the communications officer with the Irish Refugee Council. So we're um, an organisation uh, working in Ireland. We work specifically with people in the asylum process and refugees. Um, the organisation itself is about 25. It's 25 years old uh, this year, and I guess it's gone through a lot of different phases depending on the different needs and issues that arise. Um, so at the moment we'd offer free services like free information and advice services. We have an independent law centre um, we have uh, different branches of youth work. Uh, we have an education fund, we have a housing project. We'd work on integration and transitional supports for people moving out of uh, state reception centres. Um, and then we'd also do a lot of uh, research um, and advocacy work, basically lobbying for better um, responses to refugee issues and refugees themselves and better conditions for uh, people when they arrive to Ireland. But it's it's ever-changing, I guess. <laughs> and uh, one of the areas that you also work and you do very well is actually communicating the work that you do, mostly through social media. So how was that you decided to start using social media as a way to put out you know, out there the, what you're doing? Um, well, when I started at the organisation, it was at the very end of 2013. So a lot of the, I guess, communication channels that we have now were already set up. They maybe weren't being used to their full um capacity or utility and so I did do a lot of work on I guess generating maybe a community around the page it mightn't have been the most positive space when I started but I think there was a lot of maybe people going unchallenged making a lot of comments that weren't necessarily necessarily accurate or true so when I started to I guess challenge some of the the comments that people were leaving it did kind of change um, I guess the atmosphere of the whole page so like, I guess the membership or the, the supporters of the page have grown significantly since 2013 and for the most part it is um, a strong positive community who are very much in support of refugees and the protection of their rights but as in the world we live in there's always a, a majority few thankfully in our case who will express very different sentiments to what the page itself stands. Um, also with Twitter, I guess, like, there's a big difference, I guess, between our, our Facebook 
page and the the community there and on Twitter, um, and that's probably just because of the the nature of the the difference of the two um, platforms. Facebook, you can go into a little bit more detail. You can be a bit more expressive. It can be a lot more visual. Whereas with Twitter, you are kind of you have to get your point out there in quite a short manner. Um, but it's a good, I guess, space when you're talking about maybe reaching out to journalists, politicians. Um, or if you're trying to do campaign work it can have a further reach than say Facebook so I guess over the years we have used it very much to try to I guess counter some of the misinformation that can be in circulation not just in Ireland but across the world trying to show I guess when you when you work in this line of work you get to meet people you have a very uh, you, you form relationships you have that first-hand contact and the most striking and glaring thing is that we actually have a lot more commonalities with people than we have differences. But it's more often than not the differences that are highlighted or, you know, brought out in the media and sometimes not always in a very uh, accurate or, or true reflection. So I guess a big part of what we do through our social media channels is to try to bring people back to the reality of we're talking about individuals, men, women, children, families, brothers, sisters, who have the same, I guess, hopes, aspirations in life as us, but they've basically, unfortunately, due to being in the country they're in because of conflict or other reasons that people might have to flee, they find themselves in a country and they're basically starting out again from scratch. Mm-hmm. You would say that you find that when you started actually in social media, the community, existing community or the people making comments to the page weren't very... Nice. So how do you deal with with that? Because there is a lot of hate speech in social media, well, I start, in general. I started to challenge it. I think before I started, it maybe wasn't being challenged or confronted, which obviously when people go unchecked, they get more emboldened, they get more empowered, and they were there was a lot of it on the page. Like every time you'd uh, put out a post, there'd be a lot of negativity in the comment section. So I guess it was about you know responding to those comments and like sometimes it was basically calling something out is just that's completely untrue and in other cases it was more like starting a dialogue with a person because you make that judgment call where you get the feeling actually this is maybe just something they're repeating because they've heard it somewhere else and you don't want to alienate people you want to actually have a conversation with people and see where their sentiment or feeling is coming from And in in good situations or good scenarios, you have a conversation and it does actually maybe make the person have a think about the sentiments they had expressed and maybe there's information that they weren't aware of that actually gives them a different perspective or a different feeling about how they were responding. Um, that's in the kind of good instance. That's why it is always a judgment call. Then clearly you'll have commenters who have made up their mind. It's not a very pleasant uh attitude that they have um, towards, I guess, people, migrants, refugees. Um, so it, with some people, you kind of know when to draw the line and you know when it's a bit of a wasted effort to actually get into a tit for tat with them. Um, in that case, when people are overstepping the mark in terms of uh, hate speech, you know, just being aggressive towards other commenters or posters, you would make the call to just ban and delete them for the, from the page because there is no benefit or point. If, if they're on the page only to disagree with it and everything that it stands for and they start stepping over the mark, I'm not here to kind of spend my time or waste my time on people like that. 
but I definitely think there is merit in um, giving people a, have, have opening a dialogue with somebody um, and in some cases you may be able to reach out to them you may be able to change their mind or you may at least get them thinking about it and I think we all have a bit of a duty of care to do that because I think too often the more and more po- polarised I guess uh, issues become people are going to feel alienated and they mightn't re-engage with this issue and they might never I guess go on a journey to to find another way to view you know a people or the situation or how we are responding to these different humanitarian issues. Uh, from a more positive point of view because you're talking about uh, the possibility of open, uh, opening dialogue etc do you think social media in the case of the Irish Refugee Council and the work that you do has offered you an open space an opportunity really to put your point of view across that mainstream media maybe hasn't um, it has I guess it's different like say when I started there you'd kind of have to fight for your media attention um, it wasn't really a key issue but then actually heading into 2015 refugee issues became a really prominent issue because people were arriving to Europe things in Syria um, you know, entering into the uh, third year of conflict and it just became an interest of Europe so it was like a political interest it was therefore in, in, in the interest of the media in the interest of people places like Greece and Italy kind of struggling to cope with the numbers of people arriving so all of a sudden it was kind of centre stage and you didn't have to fight for media attention anymore it was it was kind of surreal that all of a sudden you know where you could have a six month communications plan or strategy to try to raise awareness around issues facing people in the asylum process or refugees all of a sudden it was just constant that would be looking at the kind of wider I guess uh, context of I guess humanitarian crisis and Europe's response to that but then going back to a more national um, focus Um, you mentioned when uh, people in the asylum centre started to protest in 2014 that that was definitely a turning point in media professionals paying more attention to people here as well and that is primarily because people started to speak out they felt like they had nothing left to lose and not only did they start speaking out but they started putting their face to their story Um, so Like I guess from the point of view of me as a communications professional, I did start with the organisation at a very interesting time because I, I got to see that transition and that turnaround in attention and awareness um, in a very dramatic way. So obviously that does make our our job and our work a lot easier because people are talking about it and through talking about it there's more awareness raising and people become more attuned so when people were seeing what was happening in Europe and were quite I guess alarmed or horrified by it they then started thinking well what's the situation for people here so the focus may have been like brought beyond Ireland but then it most definitely came back to you're seeing a lot more solidarity work and grassroots connections being made trying to break down those barriers around direct provision that were you know there was like when I first started people wouldn't realize that a building in the middle of their town was a direct provision center there was TDs who didn't know what direct provision meant but I think you could safely say that a large majority of people now at least have some understanding of what direct provision is um so 
are like the th- with the social media channels it is a way like when you're doing campaign work it's a way to reach out to your kind of base of supporters and then you're hopefully encouraging them to kind of that idea of circles of influence like if you go home and have a chat with a brother or your mother or father or a cousin or a friend in the pub over a pint that you're kind of uh, I guess spreading that circle of awareness and knowledge and hopefully for the better so I think it is it's a really powerful tool but it can also be I guess quite a damaging tool because it's a platform that's free for anyone to use and not everyone maybe has the best of intentions with how they how they uh, use platforms like Facebook or Twitter so I guess uh, I see a lot of positive stuff and I see a lot of good stuff but I also see the worst of it as well And um, you mentioned that you use uh, social media for different, uh, with different purposes. Okay, you do your campaigning, your monitoring, etc., etc. So, what's your strategy? Do you have? Do you sit down and draw a media strategy? Because all, I mean, all these inter- interviews are best practice. So, how do you do it? Do you think it's very important to have a strategy, or the most important thing when it comes to social media is to be able to react very quickly and pull an article or information or statistics that will actually challenge what is being said? I think um, trying to have, from my own experience and my time with the organization, trying to have a long term communication strategy has not worked so you do sit down you do that planning maybe you look at a window of six months or a year and you might be addressing different issues and different things that you want to achieve but then something will happen external and you have to throw that entire plan out the window because things move in a completely different direction so you do have I guess you have a plan in terms of you know if something does happen as an organization it might just be a short statement but we will maybe make a comment on things especially when we feel that they're of importance to the people that we work with so like you do have a strategy in terms of response and maybe a strategy of um what you would put out in your page and what you wouldn't but in terms <laughs> trying to plan long time I, I, I long term i did learn the hard way that it mightn't always work out the way that you uh are thinking it will work out so I guess a good example of that with us was we had a six month communication strategy around a campaign work calling for an end to direct provision but then the government announced the working group so that completely halted this six month plan that we had another example I guess being that when you were dealing with the constantly changing Um, environment in Europe and Europe's response to that and new programs springing up like relocation and resettlement and then the rise in anti-sentiment that you see maybe more so in other European countries that other it can feel a lot of the time like you're firefighting and I think that's just the nature um, of the area that we work in like and I like I always joke with my uh My the my former boss who who was the lady who hired me was it took me a year to realize oh this is just the way it is it's always this chaotic and you know challenging and you really have to think on your feet react sometimes on your feet but I guess a good lesson learned is that maybe there's times when you don't react and for the reasons um, such as misinformation like wait till the dust settles like is this an actual story did this actually happen or wait till some of the facts surface because in that kind of rapid news media environment you can find out two days later that actually a lot of the basis of breaking news stories was in fact untrue or false 
And that was Karen Reid from the Refugee Council of Ireland. And now I'm joined on the line by Anne Walsh from the No to Hate Speech campaign. Hello, Anne. Hello, how are you? And maybe to start off, um, hate speech is one of those words or one of those phrases that's, that's thrown around a bit. But um, what do people, what do we mean when we talk about hate speech? It's, it's it's an interesting one, yeah. Part of its part of its value is the fact that we can use it, and it encompasses so much. Um, but then it doesn't encompass as much as people might think it does. So the, very specifically, it's about um, any form of expression that um, incites or promotes or attempts to justify hatred or stereotyping or discrimination towards particular groups of people. And I think that's where the the key part of, of sort of the definition around hate speech needs to be at. There's a lot of people who would say, is this hate speech? Is it, is it hate speech if somebody says something awful about, um, you know, homeless people, for instance, came up last week. And under the definition that, that's, you know, that we've, we've been working with from, you know, particularly from the Council of Europe, it's very much around discrimination of particular groups. So it would be racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, all of the isms and the phobias tend to tend to come into it. And do you think that's something, I mean, is it something that's common in Ireland or is it more common in Ireland than other places or is there a way of knowing where we are with this? It's quite interesting because when we took on the No Hate Speech campaign here in Ireland, I was thinking we don't have far-right groups to the same extent that they have in Europe. You know, what is the level of hate speech? And then we just open the papers and we look at the sort of things that we hear, particularly against travellers. And you look at the comments after some sort of newspaper reports. And unfortunately, it is far more common here than we would like to, to think. It's, yeah, it, it is, unfortunately. It's very much part of our society and it's, it's always there um, and has to be fought against. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult and it causes so much grief. And as you said, because we don't tend to have obvious far-right groups, is it something then that we can be a bit blasé about and take for granted that ah, things aren't as bad here because we don't have those kind of groups? Yeah, I think we can hide under the myth of the 100,000 welcomes and think that we are very welcoming. We can tend to be very welcoming to people who are here on holidays or here for a short space of time. Not so welcoming to people who've decided that they want to make Ireland their home. Um, as if as if we don't quite understand why somebody would want to live in and contribute to our fabulous country, you know, it's it's it's. I think we need to have more pride in in who we are and and why people would want to make their home here with us. And is it partly a generational thing? Are younger people likely to be more understanding and more welcoming, and older people perhaps a little more ignorant and less welcoming? That is certainly something that came up in a piece of research that we've just done. And it was striking that the young people who spoke about significant levels of racism that they experienced, they said it was getting better, that the younger people, because they were more familiar with them, they said, that they were much more understanding and that they didn't, um, they, they didn't hear you know, racism or as much racism from their peers or for younger people. So, so that's a major, that's a, that's a plus. Now, that was one report. And I, I don't think that we can say that, you know, younger people are off the hook completely. We have other reports that say that um, younger people are also part of the problem as well. So 
But it is, yeah. The, the, mm. the, the thinking is, for the young people we spoke to, that things were, would get better. So there are some reasons to be optimistic. Perhaps if you're at school and you realise that in your classroom there are other children or other teenagers there from all sorts of different backgrounds, then because you're more familiar with it, it makes you more at ease with it. Is that is there is there some reason for optimism there? There definitely is, but there's more that needs to be done there because it's not just enough to have culturally diverse settings. The, the, the research that we've done shows up very strongly that you need to also um, embrace the diversity and young people who have dual ethnicity or even multiple ethnicity, they have to be accepted for that. So they need to be able to describe themselves in the way they want to describe themselves. They could be Polish-Irish, Nigerian-Irish, Indian-Irish, whatever. Um, and, and they need to be accepted for both of those or, or all of their ethnicities and not be put into boxes because when, what the young people have said is people tend to label them a lot and tend to put them into boxes or tend to isolate them and treat them as if they, they're possibly not sort of fully Irish. And, and that's very damaging for young people because everybody needs to feel like they belong. And to be told things that make you feel like you don't belong, is, is, it's, it's really hard on young people. So it's very hard for you to build your sense of identity if people are constantly undermining that. Do you think some of those questions like, so where are you from and where are you really from? Are some of those out of curiosity or innocence or are they always meant with some malevolence? No, they're not. And the young people say they always know when it's curiosity and they always know when they're trying to make a dig. So they absolutely accept, you know, the curious um, and, and, you know, they get that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It, it's, yeah, they know the way it's being said. Are there some groups that are more prone to hate speech than others? Definitely travellers, definitely um, black people, definitely Muslims, um, definitely experience an awful lot more hate speech than other groups um, in our experience. There's something in the Irish psyche uh, to do with the traveller identity that's never really been settled, isn't that? Isn't that such a strange one? Because in spite of the last, perhaps, generation or so where um, immigrants have come to live in Ireland, um, travellers have been around for such a long time. But still yeah. there's a, a kind of deep suspicion there or something. Yeah, um, and they're our own and we need to work through that and we need to work it out and we need to dialogue together and... Um, and, and I think if you talk to any traveller organisations, they don't deny any of the issues that need to be dealt with. Um, but just treating treating all travellers just, a, a, you know, just painting them all with the one brush is just so damaging. There's so many young travellers who won't admit to being travellers because they know they'll be treated differently. There's There's young people who are going into third-level education and they're saying, we won't tell anybody that we're travellers because we know how we'll be treated and we know the results will be worse. You know, that we won't do as well, that people will have assumptions about us. That's a terrible indictment on Mm. us, that we don't want to support people who want to get on. Tell us about the the focus of your own campaign, Anne. So what we've done is, um, well, the, the campaign itself started with the Council of Europe and they were particularly looking at the damage of far-right um, politics. And they, they, so they invited all of their sort of 47 members um, across Europe and beyond to come in. So each of the national campaigns were run separately. So, of course, we had no resources in Ireland. Um, 
and so it was like what could we do and it's a young person's campaign so one of the things we feel very strongly on in the National Youth Council is really bringing the young person's voice out and giving them the, the lead so the whole idea from the beginning was we want young people to train up and to take over this campaign so right from the beginning the whole focus was on training up young people who would decide what way they wanted the campaign to go so we have gr group of youth ambassadors and they would train up a bit on no hate speech, on what it was, and explore what they could do. And some of them took it into um, doing very creative stuff. You know, they've done spoken word, and they've made videos, and they've done flash mobs. Others have taken it um, into presentations, into schools and youth groups. Um, so it's, it really depends on the on the young people and what they want. We've kept a social media. We have a social media platform, and we have a website so they've kept the social media platform alive and they would be posting stuff very much focusing on trying to create the counter narratives you know the opposite stories to the nasty ones and sharing those around and also i think the main thing being a really strong presence out there to be able to say to other people ordinary everyday people you know what it's okay to 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 answer back it's okay to say when you see something online that you don't like i don't like this you know, I think this is hateful, and and report it. You know, so that's been that's that's what we've wanted to do. It's shifting and changing our culture around it. And that sounds um, really interesting about the whole youth ambassadors and the, the kind of spoken word things and dealing with social media. But it's it's such a huge theme. Maybe we'd be able to get some of them in uh, at a later stage on another program and and just feature some of those things, like you say, some of the really positive kind of cultural artistic expression, like spoken word. And then that whole uh, um, maze of dealing with social media. They'd love to. They'd yeah, love to. yeah. Um, them. yeah. Maybe just to just to wrap up for today. How important are positive role models in society? Oh, hugely, absolutely amazing. We we need leadership so much. And one of the things that's actually really amazing about the young people we've worked with is is the leadership roles that they're taking, and then they need leaders as well who support them. And, and that's when change happens. You need, you need leadership at the very top. We're not going to change anything if you don't have strong leadership. But it's watching the young people come in and take over and take on leadership roles that is, is just really great to watch and, and see them just flourish and take over and, and make, make a huge difference. They are making a huge difference. You know, they've been very strong. They're very strong during the marriage equality campaign on trying to keep a sort of respectful space online while that was going on. Um, so, yeah, really, you know, they've, they've used the No Hate Speech campaign to tackle, particularly tackling racism that they feel is, is very strong and very out there. And they want to do it in very positive ways. That's great, Anne. That's, uh, there's... There's so much in this. It's a huge area and uh, we do look forward to you and some of those youth ambassadors coming back again. But uh, we leave it there for today. Thanks. So thanks very much for coming on. No problem. And we'll talk, to you, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, million. So that was Anne from the No to Hate Speech campaign and um, thanks as well to Karen Reid from the Communication Officer from the Refugee Council of Ireland and to Sally Galliana. And uh, thanks to Doni, our producer here today. Um, we'll be back next week where we'll be joined by Peter Feeney, the press ombudsman. Um, until then, Slán agus Bannacht. Respect. 
Σέβομαι. Ρεσπέτο. Σποστούιμα. Respect words. Ηθική δημοσιογραφία για την αντιμετώπιση της ρητορικής του μίσους. Ήτιτσνο νοβιναρστβο πρωτισοβράζνε μου γόβορου. Ήλποτέρε δελε παρόρε. Respect for words. Respect for menschen. Gegen hassreden. Ατίσταλατ χαγγιαν σόλουν. Ριπορτοκ ίντερειουκ τουδούσιτάσοκ α γιούλετ δεσίδ έλλαν. Μη μπέτσουιουκ αμάσικον. Respect. La onda local de Andalucía contra los discursos de odio. Más or oco? Erisorg de ethical, equina kainta fuha. Ethical journalism against hate speech. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Supported by the Rights, Equality and Citizenship Program of the European Union.